Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the book of Philippians. You may have noticed we're jumping ahead a little bit to the end of chapter 2 because Dave Cleland covered Philippians 2, um, the beginning of the chapter, as a New Year sermon. So we're going to jump down to the end of Philippians 2 and go into Philippians 3 this morning. Remember, beloved, remember, these are the very written words of God written for you, and written for me. Paul writes in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you and all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Finally, or it could also be furthermore, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, a number of years ago, I shared with you a fascinating book that I read. I think it was maybe five years ago called A Fisherman's Tomb. I don't know if you remember that. A Fisherman's Tomb, think of like 
Indiana Jones meets like biblical archaeology. And you have the book, A Fisherman's Tomb. I highly recommend it. It is a riveting read. You may not agree with all of its conclusions, but it's worth your time. Basically, it chronicles the search and perhaps even likely finding of the bones of the Apostle Peter. I don't know if you remember this. The roots of this story go all the way back to 1939 and the death of Pope Pius XI. And so Pius XI wanted to be buried at the bottom of St. Peter's Basilica, which was an unusual request and desire. And so in digging out his tomb at the bottom of St. Peter's Basilica, just like from a movie, a worker breaks through the floor and falls 20 feet down into a room they did not know was there, an ancient Roman burial ground. This is all true, replete with the best Roman frescoes and statuary ever found. Back in 300 AD, Constantine had built St. Peter's Basilica over what was believed to be the tomb of Peter. So when they fall, when the worker falls through this floor, sees this ancient room, this ancient necropolis, Pope Pius XII um, engineered an archaeological search and dig to see if they could find the bones of Peter. Long story short, he ultimately employed the top archaeologist in the world at the time, a woman, and in the course of her study, she found an ancient graffiti wall. She was an expert in looking at ancient scripts, and the ancient graffiti wall said, among other things, Peter is near. Peter lies within. They find a box in an alcove, the bones were tested. They were that of a man of the first century of robust constitution. Amazing. The church viewed it to be the bones of Peter. Peter, we don't, we don't know. It's very interesting, maybe even likely. I ran into another story last week related to the bones of Paul. Did you know? that in 2009, the church believes, based on something they found, that they have found some of the actual bone fragments of Paul. I don't know how I missed this story. This story also goes way, way back. So we know from church history, from the earliest tradition, that Peter and Paul were killed in Rome at the order of Nero. Do you remember the year, likely? If we're still awake now, around what year? Around 65 A.D., Peter and Paul are killed. Peter killed inside the city by crucifixion. Paul killed outside the city by what? By beheading. Why was Paul beheaded? Because that was the kind of execution reserved for Roman citizens. It was viewed as a quick, clean, painless death. Constantine 
and 325 builds the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls over what was viewed to be the grave of the Apostle Paul. We know from the earliest of history, after Paul was executed, they took his bones two miles away and put it in the graveyard of a local wealthy Christian woman. It became a site of pilgrimage in the first century by the early church. That's how Constantine knew where to build this church in 390 A.D. A subsequent Roman emperor put the bones of Paul, what were believed with good reason to be the bones of Paul, in a white stone sarcophagus in around 390 A.D. And then the church was built and then rebuilt over it. And then in 1823, the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls totally burned down. They built a new church over it and they buried the white sarcophagus. So fast forward to the year 2000 when many of the faithful requested, is there any way that we can figure out whether or not that white sarcophagus is even really there? The church agreed. Isn't this amazing? This is incredible. I find this to be fascinating. 2002, they start the excavations. Guess what they find? They find a tombstone first that says, it says, Paul the Apostle Martyr. Below that, they found a white stone sarcophagus dating no later than 390 A.D. So there was this debate in the church. Should we try to figure out if bones are in this white? Like they know for a fact, the indisputable truth of this story is that that white sarcophagus goes back to 380, 390 A.D. So there was a debate in the church. Should we drill a hole in the sarcophagus? Put in a camera and see what's there. They debated for a few years, as typically happens. 2009. Did any of you know this? This is incredible. 2009, they drill a hole. They put it down there. They take bone fragments out. Carbon dated the bone fragments. A male from the first or second century. The church announced and proclaimed that they had found also now the bones of Paul. We don't know. It's fascinating to consider. I think they, it could likely be the bones of Paul. We do know, though, that Paul was executed by beheading outside the city walls of Rome in approximately 65 A.D. He sacrificed everything for the church of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting in our passage today is his opponents would not do that. They were not going to sacrifice everything for the church. They were not willing to undergo persecution in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to explore a little bit about that as we go along this morning. I want to look at Paul's main antagonist in his ministry. This is one of the most significant, foundational, pivotal passages in the entire New Testament. Philippians chapter 3. 
where we get the glorious doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. This is where it comes from. Paul could not be any more specific, any more direct, any more articulate, any more clear. Let's, let's look at what the opponents of Paul were preaching and teaching. We'll explore why and connect that to the rest of the text. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, where, you know, like when I talk about at the end of the sermon, it's time to land the plane. Paul is starting to land the plane in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, furthermore, he's making some of his final points. He writes, My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What is he saying here? So we get that phrase, repetition is the key to learning. Well, we didn't coin that. The Apostle Paul believed repetition is the key to learning. He's saying, I'm going to say the same things that I've said to you before, maybe when he was there or maybe in a previous letter. I've said these things to you before, but you need to take heed. I'm going to say them again because we have an enemy that we have to be watching out for, an enemy of the gospel. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you, to repeat to you, to reaffirm these things to you. It's no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. It's better for you. What's he going to repeat again? Verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So who are these people that Paul refers to as dogs, evildoers, flesh mutilators? Who was this person? Who were these people? And why did he describe them this way, when he says, look out for the dogs, you know your Bible. What term did the Jews use for kind of unclean Gentiles? How did Jews refer to outsiders to Gentiles? Do you remember what was one term they used? They were referred to as dogs, okay, as kind of outside, unclean people not fit to worship in the context of Israel. It's interesting that Paul is referring to this adversary as a dog, as someone who is outside the covenant people of God. He refers to them as evildoers. He refers to them as mutilators. Why does he refer to them as mutilators? Because these were what theologians refer to as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were a group of people that were trying to make the Gentiles Jewish in order to be saved. Hence the term Judaizers, to make Jewish. The opponent here were the Judaizers. And so what their belief was is in order to be a saved Christian, you had to believe in Jesus plus what? You all should know this. You should be able to teach this. Circumcision. Okay, if you have your Bibles, you can refer back to Acts 15.1. So Acts 15.1 recounts the Council of Jerusalem, and the apostles are trying to figure out, in Gentile lands, when the gospel is preached, what are they going to require of the Gentiles? 
Okay, are they going to require the Gentiles to become Jews, to be circumcised and believe in Jesus, or is it just faith in Christ? Acts 15.1, Luke recounts, certain people came down from Judea, they came really from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they were teaching the believers. Quote, what does it say? Acts 15.1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Let me repeat that. This was the teaching of the Judaizers. Quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what the Judaizers were teaching. It was a Jesus plus. Question for you. What was their motive? Why were the Judaizers teaching that in order to be a saved Christian, it's Jesus plus circumcision? Little Bible trivia. Do you know why? Paul tells us why in Galatians 6. We don't have to speculate. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about the Judaizers and why they compel people to be circumcised. Quote, Galatians 6, 12. The only reason they, the Judaizers, try and compel you to be circumcised is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So they were different than the Pharisees. The Judaizers believed in Jesus, but they also maintained that you had to be circumcised, and they did this to avoid persecution. Take a sip of your coffee. Let's take a breath. How does that math work? These people did preach Christ, but they also said in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised. Somehow they felt like that helped them avoid, and the church avoid persecution. So maybe their heart was in the right place. Maybe they were trying to protect the church. How would that protect the church from persecution? Little quiz for you. What was happening around this same time within the nation of Israel? Jewish nationalism was increasing in intensity. In just a few years, the Romans would crush the Jewish national rebellion and destroy what great edifice? in 70 AD. You know this. The what? The temple. So let's just see if we can track this. There's, I, I know this can be confusing. Non-believing Jews could not stand when Christian Jews enjoyed fellowship with Gentiles. Non-believing Jews viewed, like, believing Jews in the Lord Jesus Christ how did those believing Jews now view believing Gentiles? How did believing Jews view believers in Christ that were Gentiles? How were they supposed to view them? As brothers and sisters, one in Christ Jesus, heirs according to the promise. And so they were engaging in table fellowship. They were going to church together, if you will. Well, unbelieving Jews saw Messianic Jews interacting with Gentiles, and buddy, that infuriated them. And so they persecuted the believing Jews. Some believing Jews thought, okay, if we make the Gentiles into Jews, 
if we circumcise the Gentiles and they, in a sense, become Jews, then the non-believing Jews won't be upset with us. Is that just as clear as mud? Put yourself in the position. You're a believing Jew. You're one with these Gentiles that have come to faith. You think in your mind, what's the big deal? Let's circumcise them and get these unbelieving Jews off our back. And then everything will be fine. Their hearts may have been in the right place, but Paul said, absolutely not. It doesn't matter what your motive is, what your intention is, nothing, nothing at all can be allowed to obscure the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul says to these Judaizers is, okay, if, if our Jewishness contributes to our salvation, well, Paul says, if we're going to go down that road, I can one-up everybody. Let's look at our text. Verse 4, he's like, okay, if you want to go down that road, if you want to force these Gentiles to be Jewish in order to be accepted by God, if that's a basis for acceptance by God, it's Jesus plus being Jewish, well, buddy, no one can exceed me in terms of resume. And of course, by implication, this is what we do today. When we think our good deeds or our quiet times or people that we've led to faith, or our church attendance, what Paul's going to say is, all of those things are of no value when it comes to being made right with God. Those things are loss. Those things are impediments to coming to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says about himself. It's, it's fascinating, as he kind of like cites different facets of his own resume. He cites seven different things. This is some of my favorite parts of the Bible. Paul writes in Philippians 3, 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Okay, if we're being made right with God by works, buddy, I'm in good shape. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anybody thinks their quiet times or church attendance gets them to heaven, I've got more confidence. And then he lists off seven things on his resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I wasn't just circumcised. I was circumcised precisely according to Mosaic law on the eighth day. Sometimes there was some laxity within Judaism. People would have their children circumcised, not necessarily on the eighth day. He's like, oh, no, no. I was circumcised on the eighth day. He says, of the people of Israel. Okay, what is he saying there? I'm of, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I, I am of the people of Israel. How would that distinguish Paul? How would that separate him from even other Jews or other believers? Like you had a whole group of people in the Old Testament new called proselytes. Has anybody ever heard what a proselyte was? A Gentile who had become a Jew and worshipped the God of Israel was a proselyte. It was a Gentile who had become a Jew. And he's like, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day and... And I'm an ethnic Jew. I am of Israel. Then what does he say next? 
Number three, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. See, people from time immemorial, you know, have looked to their background, their pedigree, their family name, their IQ, where they went to school as a basis for their standing before God. Well, people in Israel did that too. It wasn't enough just to be part of the 12 tribes. There was a pecking order within the 12 tribes. Do you remember what tribe the first king in Israel was from? Paul's namesake was who? Saul, the first king of Israel. Guess what tribe he was from? From the tribe of Benjamin. There was a pecking order within Judaism. The tribe of Benjamin had perhaps the highest caliber, the highest pedigree, circumcised on the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews next, which means some Jews, national, ethnic, even circumcised on the eighth day Jews, they had something negative going for them. Anybody have any idea why he would say, like he would try to distinguish himself from all other Jews by saying he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. What do you think that means? That means, see, within the Judaism of Paul's day, what had happened to the Jews even in Israel? Do you know that what they were afflicted by? What they were trying to protect against? Being assimilated into what culture? The Greco-Roman culture. They didn't want to be Hellenized. They didn't want to be Greekified. Paul's saying, that didn't happen to me. Oh, I am. I am as Hebrew as it gets. I have not capitulated and compromised, and I haven't been Hellenized. My pedigree is impeccable. As to the law of Pharisee, he reached the highest stratosphere of law-keeping. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, he says in Galatians, I was so zealous and so passionate for Judaism, I tried to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He sums it all up with number seven. Under the law, as it relates to righteous under the law, what is his verdict about himself? Blameless. I have per kept perfect outward conformity to the law. If anyone that is ever listed would have a basis to believe their works made them right with God, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet he viewed all of those things as it relates to a right standing with God as being dung, as being human excrement when it comes to being accepted by God. He said, I count all of those things as loss. They are a detriment. They are an impediment. We know the Bible says that our best deeds are what? Filthy rags. This was the beauty, the glory of the Protestant Reformation that in its beginning was only trying to reform the church. This is what Luther called the gateway to paradise when he realized we get a righteousness from God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we receive by faith. This is the message that they were called to preach all over the world. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not my quiet times, not my church attendance, not my confirmation, none of that. 
Not a righteousness of my own that comes from law keeping, a righteousness of God that I get by what? What does the text say? Through what? Through faith in the work of another. The finished work of Jesus. And Paul was not going to compromise. He was not going to allow the purity or the message of the gospel to be obscured by requiring circumcision for salvation. He was going to die for it. The Judaizers, they were putting their comfort over Christ in order to avoid persecution and being out of step with society, they added to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They weren't willing to sacrifice. Let's tie Epaphroditus back in. How does he relate to this? These men, Peter, who was crucified in Rome, Paul, beheaded outside of Rome, they gave up everything. They sacrificed everything for the good of the church. What was Paul doing in, under house arrest? He is, he, he is like writing churches. He's caring for churches. He's discipling churches. Do you remember why is a little Bible trivia? Can make sure we're awake. Why was Paul in this prison? Do you remember? What landed him in house arrest? Anybody remember? He was taking a gift, a financial gift, from the Gentile churches to the church in Jerusalem to help with famine relief and to try to bring unity between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. He wanted to humble the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to say, look, your Gentile brothers and sisters have sacrificially given for your benefit. Do you remember what Paul's friends told him prior to his journey in Jer to Jerusalem in the book of Acts? Do you remember what they told Paul? If we're still awake, they told Paul, don't go. There was a prophet named Agabus. He said, if you go to Jerusalem and you bring this gift, you're going to be arrested. It's not going to go well with you. Why not just give the gift to someone else to take to Jerusalem? I'll tell you why, because Paul loved the church. He loved the people of God. He was willing to sacrifice everything for their good, for their welfare, for their benefit. Look at Epaphroditus. He does the same thing. He does the exact same thing. It's very ironic. So Epaphroditus was a Philippian. The church at Philippi was one of the only churches to support Paul while he's under house arrest. When you're under house arrest, you've got to fund everything. You've got to pay for the house. You've got to pay for your food. You've got to pay for the parchments that were very expensive when they would write these letters. There perhaps was only one church that was financially supporting Paul when he was in house arrest. And it was the Philippian church. And they had dispatched their gift to Paul through Epaphroditus. Anybody have any idea how far Philippi is from Rome? Almost a thousand miles away. And it would have been a very difficult journey. Look at what Paul says about Epaphroditus. Chapter 2, verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. He's going to send 
the letter that we're reading with Epaphroditus back to Philippi. I thought it necessary to send you, Epaphroditus, my fellow brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. So not only did Epaphroditus bring this letter, he assisted Paul and cared for Paul and helped Paul. Verse 26, he's been longing for you all and he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill, probably on the way, long journey, hard journey. He fell ill, maybe thought he was going to die. A prolonged illness in the ancient Near East usually did not end well. Probably what happened is there were a group of people, Epaphroditus was traveling with, someone peeled off the group, went back to Philippi to let them know to pray for him. He may not make it. So Epaphroditus gets to Rome, talks to Paul, and Epaphroditus is hurt and distressed because he knows his church at home is worrying about him. Verse 26, he has been longing for you all. He's been distressed because he heard, because you heard that he was ill. Look at verse 27, indeed he was ill. Paul writes, Epaphroditus was near to death. Bringing in this letter had almost cost him everything. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Like it's bad enough to be in house arrest, but if Epaphroditus would have died, that would have made the situation far more heartbreaking. Verse 28, I am the more eager now to send him, meaning well. I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him. He's healthy and whole again and that I may be less anxious. You know, a reunion between you all and Epaphroditus would bring joy to my heart. Verse 29. So, receive him in the Lord with all joy. Notice what he says. And honor such men. Why? He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me, like bringing this gift. Epaphroditus was willing to risk everything for the good of the church. Paul was in a Roman prison and would ultimately die risking everything for the good of the church. What does that mean for you and me? That means we should be a people committed to the good of the church. We need to be a people committed to the mission and the message of the church. We're continuing Paul's mission that he is doing and founding and administrating and caring for. We are continuing this in the 21st century. We need to be a people that insist that the gospel that Paul outlines in Philippians 3 is preached in this pulpit Week after week, we should insist on nothing less than the pure gospel, the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ being proclaimed from this pulpit. Paul said, I, I am committed to nothing but preaching Christ and him crucified. I'll know nothing else beyond that. The message of the church, the mission of the church. Here's my question for you. I'll end with this. And this is a question for me. How much do we love the church?
How invested are we in the continuing mission of the church of the 21st century? Paul and Epaphroditus and all of the women that were assisting Paul were willing to inconvenience themselves and sacrifice for the good of the church. One of the challenges of the 21st century to the good of the local church is kind of like the Christian culture in which we operate, where it's very easy to be a Christian today apart from the local church. Many of our children go to wonderful Christian schools, or even if they're not at Christian schools, there's so many Christian uh, you know, young life and K-life and wonderful things that are a part of these schools. It's easy to be a Christian disconnected from your local church. But the local church is the vehicle that God has ordained to minister the gospel throughout the ages. Do you love the church? Not just Christendom in general. Are you committed to the mission that God gave through Christ to the apostles in building the church of Jesus Christ, of which providence is one picture of many. We need you. We need you to put the interests of this body and the propagation of the gospel above your own comfort. Are you willing to sacrifice for the good of Providence Presbyterian Church and her mission? You know, are you willing to build community here and growing this church into the 21st century and beyond? I'll end with this. How much do you, how much do I love the local church? Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your graciousness and loving kindness. We thank you for the example of Peter and Paul and all the amazing women that helped Paul and the other apostles. We thank you for the example of Epaphroditus who literally risked his life to get this gift to this Roman prison so Paul could offer a defense for himself and be released and continue on to a fourth missionary journey. Father, we thank you that Paul was willing to risk everything to pay the ultimate price to see the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glories of justification by grace through faith alone, proclaimed throughout the world. Father, may we be a people committed to the message and the mission of the local church of our time. We pray this in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.